Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Living Room Logic. Welcome back to Season 2 of Living Room Logic. This episode, Andrew has one hell of a conversation with historian and researcher Dr Fiona Gallagher. Fiona retells a forgotten story of Ireland's past when a cholera outbreak swept through the populace and tested the strength of an already fragile society. Help us spread the podcast by following us or subscribing to us wherever you get your podcasts. And check us out on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, at Living Room Logic to join our logical following. This season is supported by FameLab Ireland. What's the crack? This week I have an interesting story to share with you about how Ireland historically has handled pandemics. Let me walk you through my thinking and I interviewed a historian, Dr Fiona Gallagher, about Ireland's historical responses to pandemics. See, over the last year and a bit, we've seen the world effectively shut down in the face of an invisible lung-eating menace. Like us all, I had too much time on my hands only to be filled with what I had in my room. I should count my blessings that I have all of the information collected by mankind, digitised, often in the palm of my hands. I can learn about velociraptors, which in reality were disappointingly the same size as turkeys, but also see catastrophe across the globe, live-streamed onto my Twitter feed. I think people in my generation likely suffer from an empathetic overload sourced in this visualisation of global issues somehow both feeling the pain of others worlds apart and still detached from those we speak to online, or whatever. At least we are more informed, I guess. But what if we couldn't? What if we couldn't see New York digging mass graves in 2020, hospitals being overrun, a global vaccine effort, or see the count of 3.5 million real lives which have been lost as I record this? I think we take for granted just how informed we are. Understanding how a disease happens, even, is an incredibly recent achievement. Bacteria causing disease was first identified in 1860, with viruses being understood 30 years later. Think about that. No doctors knew this. The quality of medicine to treat disease up to this point was pretty poor. And when you put these together, how do you think people in the past managed pandemics? You'd never see the reality of a disease until it's too late. The doctors didn't understand exactly what was happening, so they had to be taken at their word. The word of someone who isn't always too helpful anyway. It's easy to say today that you would know better, but the people of the times likely never stood a chance. Like you thinking velociraptors as six-foot intelligent dinosaurs because of Jurassic Park, rather than the spiky possum-brained turkeys they really were. So I went online and looked for examples of pandemics reaching Ireland and how we reacted. The best example was a cholera pandemic which reached the island in 1832. There were seven cholera pandemics between 1817 and 1975. It's no simple disease. Cholera itself is a bacteria, meaning that in 1832 we simply did not understand it. Now we know it enters the body through unhygienic water or food, infects the small intestine causing significant dehydration by diarrhoea. 
Today, it's simply treated by providing clean water and a diorolite to replace the electrolytes lost. But think, if a community's well had cholera, how would you treat the disease? Doctors of the time certainly weren't walking around with bottles of Evian and a few sachets of blackcurrant diorolite. They didn't have antibiotics either, on account that it was yet to be invented. So cholera would infect somebody and take their life in a matter of days if they couldn't rehydrate. This dehydrated state that cholera left people in gained cholera the name the Blue Death. The next question was, how the hell does a pandemic happen in the 19th century? I can understand the rapid spread of COVID around the globe. After all, it's only seven hours from Shannon, Ireland to New York. The answer is armies and boats, specifically in the pools of water at the base of a ship's hull. Cholera first popped up in India in 1817, spread to Persia and crossed the Caspian Sea and ended up in Russia. Um, by 1831, Russia sent an army to quell an uprising in Poland and it brought cholera with them. Germany, Prussia at the time, closed its borders to protect from the disease rumours that they had heard about. But merchant ships need to sail to survive. So the ships moved into Hamburg from the sea and then to Sunderland. The British tried to lock the port and quarantine ships, but the owners became frustrated and told captains to ignore the laws. Naturally, the disease spread throughout London through their canals, ending up in Liverpool and then Scotland, where it eventually spread to Ireland. But what happened next? How badly did it hit Ireland? How did Ireland nationally deal with it? How did the Irish Medical Board and ancient Nefet respond? What did they know? Did people believe them? Was there as much misinformation spread? After all, never waste a crisis is an old phrase. I did not know, and that is okay. So I looked around for someone who did. I found Dr. Fiona Gallagher. Well, at the minute, I'm doing uh, quite a bit of work on the 1832 cholera epidemic. The reason why I'm doing that, I suppose, it had a huge impact on the town of Sligo, uh, which had the worst death rate probably in Britain or Ireland uh, from the epidemic in 1832. And here is what she had to say. Well, Ireland was vulnerable, uh, um, really, for a number of reasons, more vulnerable than Britain, even though Britain was just at the start of this massive explosion in industrial cities like Birmingham, cities that were only towns in the late 18th century were now starting to, like Birmingham was yes. still only tiny in 1820, very small city, so was Manchester, but a decade later, they were just starting to explode into these huge industrial cities. But they were developed, if you know what I mean, so there was a rudimentary sewerage system laid down in those, not necessarily fresh water, but certainly they were able to dispose of human waste, whereas in Ireland that certainly didn't happen. And uh, the physical condition of the people, both in rural and mm -hmm. urban areas, was generally poor. And of course, it's, it's, yes. it was a hugely rural population, but with intense concentrations in small towns like Sligo, Galway, Westport, Castlebar, Limerick. And interestingly enough, intense concentrations of people in clahans in the countryside. So yeah. people didn't live scattered on your half acre, you know, with your people lived in these very tight little clusters of clahan settlements, particularly along the West Coast. So it mightn't have been an urban area, but it had the same characteristics of those living in a small urban area. So, um, and the decade before 1832 in Ireland was marked by regular local outbreaks of famine and fever, and that left an entire class of people weak for the want of sustenance and easy disease, easy prey to disease. And in Ireland in particular, the connection between famine and fever was well understood. So if you were hungry, you were more susceptible to fever, you know. 
And behind all this, there's a, a sort of a climate thing as well, too. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard of the Mount Tambora explosion. It was a huge volcanic explosion in, I think, 18, was it 1815. Um, and it, it, it resulted in about five or six years of very dull summers. It threw up a huge cloud of ash. It's well known, this, and it, it went around the world. But it resulted in greater cloud cover. And in Ireland, it was a successive period, a decade of much cooler summers between 1821 and 1831, which had led to food shortages and a lack of availability of turf. And of course, no turf meant no fire, no fire meant no hot water. So you couldn't boil water. So you had no way of killing stuff. And it's, by boiling the water, you kill the bacteria. So it's um, it's an interesting it's yeah. an interesting lesson. Of course, it seems like a series of unfortunate events and the downstream effect of these things. Mm. Yeah, so so Ireland was in this particularly vulnerable position when cholera entered the country. So how did it spread and um, what did we do to kind of try to stop the spread, I suppose? Well, what did we try to do? I suppose it, it entered through Belfast, which would make sense given Belfast daily, multiple daily connections with Glasgow and, and the, the Scottish ports on the 29th of February, 1832. So it arrived there quite early and it spread mostly south, first of all. And if you plotted, if plotted it, the first that it first appeared, you, you can follow where it went. And think about this, this is a, a period when there was only the mail coaches, there was no trains, there was no trains, and very, very a tiny train around Dublin. There was no Mm-hmm. There was no regular connections between cities so, or towns, so people just walked. I think we have more, after spending a year in lockdown, we yeah. now have, we're more cognizant of how long it takes to walk 10 kilometres or 15 kilometres. You know, stuff we wouldn't have dreamt of doing before, you know, I mean, even, you know. So <laughs> sure. if you yeah. have nothing to do all day and you just want to go to Westport to the fair and you leave Sligo in the morning, well, you might make Westport either really late that, well, you'll make it the next morning anyway, and you stopped <laughs> along the way. Yeah. And, what was really unique about Ireland that didn't happen in Britain was this army of beggars, literally people who were very poor, mendicant, wandering beggars who moved from town to town. They followed the fairs. They followed the marks. They followed a sort of a, almost a circuit that they moved around and they could move huge businesses, mm. uh, which is really quite interesting. And they became a social. They were mostly women and children. There was a huge amount of women and children who the, the, the husband may have worked. He may have met up with him you know, a couple of times a year. It was a very sort of a, a vague arrangement, very much pre-famine Ireland. And they moved on a regular basis uh, from city to city. And they certainly could have brought it with them, may have brought it with them. Sounds familiar? Yeah, yeah. Again, absolutely. sounds familiar. But hmm. they became transfixed then with, with these beggars and every town had its own beggar badge. So they, they, they printed these badges with a number and the name of the town and that was assigned to you. So you were a registered beggar in your own town so it meant that you couldn't go to another town in case you'd bring disease, but you were entitled to relief in your own town. So they, they had oh. relief on that. On it. So um, <laughs> that's that's very interesting. <laughs> sounds interesting. So <laughs> it is. And um, so it came to Belfast on the 18th of March and it had spread to almost every corner of the country by the end of 1832, with the exception of Leitrim. Leitrim had no death wow. by the end of 1832 because Leitrim was so overwhelmingly mm. rural and its low population. So about 50,000, over 50,000 people died before it finally abated in the spring of 1833. Uh, it struck very hard, but also very erratically. And it would attack some towns by leaving towns nearby totally unaffected. And this led to a real false sense of, of security. Came to, the cholera came to Ireland, as we said, on the 18th of March, 1833, via Belfast. 
it appeared in Dublin by the 25th of March, which is almost less than a week. And by that date, the newspaper had started to publish reports of its spread. Uh, 430 people died in May 1832. And by the 5th of July, there was 1,500 people dead in Dublin. And by Christmas 1832, the total number of deaths for Dublin City was around 4,500, quite a number. Kilkenny had its first case in August 1832, while rural and remote county Leitrim Money reported its first case in January 1833. The disease spread quickly in urban areas, but it was the provincial market towns that were to suffer the most. Uh, with the countryside relatively less effective. By the 12th of April, cholera had reached Cork. So from the middle of March to the middle of April, it had managed to reach Cork. Uh, it was in Tralee on the 28th of April, Galway by the 12th of May, Limerick 48 hours later, uh, Waterford had its first case on the 20th of May, and Castlebar and Westport were in a frightful state by the end of July, with 76 cases in Westport and 46 deaths in Castlebar. And by mid-August, by around the 15th of August, the pestilence finally reached Sligo. It sort of did a, a, a circular tour of, of the county, of the country. That's fascinating. And and it, what strikes me is the way you're describing it is I'm just picturing in maybe five or ten years time, someone talking about it going through modern COVID, going through modern day Ireland in yeah. the exact same way of the dates that it first arrived. Because we all remember when, um, wasn't there a doctor right, in Clare? Yeah. And it yeah. all started there and how it moved and yeah. where it popped up. It's just fascinating to listen to. It. And it's actually, it's exceptional that we have that data from 1832, well, isn't it? Well, really focusing on at the minute. We have sort of, we have some data on the towns and that, but what I'm trying to do is, is to map this and to use the different types of, of data course. and the different types of data. It's really pernickety work, difficult to do, even more difficult to do when mm-hmm. all the archives are closed, but um, any, oh, any historian will I identify no with that. So that's effectively what I'm trying to do, to map the, the spread, the date, the distribution. And we all know now about cases and deaths. These, this, we, every day we want to know cases and deaths. And these are terminologies that mm-hmm. have been used for a very long time, uh, because of course the 19th century mm-hmm. was the era of statistics and the Board of Health was the first yes. board who collected case numbers and collected death numbers, tabulated them and tried to analyze them. And that's 170 odd years ago, uh, almost 200 years ago, actually. And here we're doing exactly the same thing, yes. except we now have Microsoft Excel, which is maybe makes it a little bit easier. Um, <laughs> well, that's 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 so interesting. And uh, just with that, so how did the government of Ireland at the time actually respond to this? How did they, what what was the message they were trying to share? Were they doing anything with imports or quarantines or travel bans or anything like that? Like, you know, similar to today? Well, or? well the first thing, the Board of Health, as we said, um, was, was renamed the Cholera Board yes. for the duration. And it started to supply the little accounts of the epidemic. Interestingly, amongst the higher social classes, Doctors, apothecaries and clergymen were particularly at risk from the cholera because their duties brought them into contact with the sick. So it's really, you know, class was no guarantor of escaping the disease. In fact, you know, doctors, doctors, there were no real nurses in the sense that we understand nurses today. There was sort of what you would call like a a, a nurse's aide or effectively what you got at home. And it was often widow women who did the work. But I mean... What they did, first of all, yes. was they stopped funerals, they stopped religious services, they particularly came down hard on the Irish, the traditional Irish wake, and they instituted quarantine and social distancing. And if there's anything 
that echoes today as much as that, you know. Yeah, so sure. there were so many things, right, not just in Ireland, but right across Britain. In, in Russia, the Tsarist government uh, instituted quarantine, armed cordons, and prevented the movement of people, particularly when they were involved with the unrest in, in Poland. And of course, that agitated people. So there was mob violence. Uh, there was, you know, several people shot by troops when they sent in the troops. Again, sounds familiar. And mm-hmm. um, in in Spain, it was punishable by death to leave an infected town. British authorities, however, uh, mindful of international national trade, hesitated. <laughs> again, familiar. Eventually, implementing less coercive measures to control the wow. pestilence. Uh, initially, the government imposed uh, quarantine at measures at British and Irish ports, but there was the significant opposition, as I said before, from from vested commercial interests who didn't want good goods delayed and of course there was the unpredictable geographical spread of the cholera they couldn't because they didn't understand how it spread they couldn't understand how it would erupt in places that had no connection with the previous place you know quarantine of the sick was standard practice uh, even by 1832 and it was prevented large-scale infection but in ireland there was a number of distinct political social and economic circumstances which mitigated against any large-scale imposition of of uh, quarantine. So the Irish Board of Health operated somewhat differently than the British Board of Health. Um, if they employed a strict quarantine on travel to towns and ports or between towns and ports, there would be a huge economic repercussions. Mm-hmm. You know, extensive social unrest was a real possibility, yes, yes. given that this was right in the middle of a very violent uh, campaign against the tides. So political and economic issues were already running high. So instead of Brexit, you had the tide war. So you can, you know, we can see the corollary <laughs> there. And so, uh, so large gatherings of protesters in provincial areas continued throughout the epidemic. And that Absolutely. And these protesters against quarantine. These, so this surely must have enabled the spread of the yes. disease. Many preventative measures were used against the, the spread of the cholera and they strike a chord with us uh, today, even even in the modern pandemic. Sick victims had to be reported to the medical officer and then they had to be removed to a hospital, a fever hospital. Mass gatherings and funerals were, were banned and the authorities uh, felt that the um, the rambling house, the custom of the poorer classes to go rambling from house to house at night, that had to be banned. Um, and they would they assumed that that correctly, that that would lead to the spread of disease. Um, and in Cork, a priest was assaulted when he opposed mourners attending a wake house. Ordinary burial rituals were abandoned and the sheer number of dead in some towns uh, overwhelmed church eyes. And in, in many towns, they dug cholera trenches um, as they did in Sligo, and they were opened by the rapid disposal of infectious corpses. So they simply had to bury them really fast. Again, eerily, uh, Absolutely. eerily eerie echoes, uh, particularly not in Ireland, but in other oh, countries. Yeah, of course. Um, so markets were banned, shops were shut, fairs were banned, and the streets of Irish towns emptied. Literally. Wow. In Sligo, it was said, you know, all that was to be heard was the footfall of the doctor and the medical men hurrying from house to house. Everybody effectively stayed Gosh. at home, went inside, didn't come out. <laughs> so it, it, but this had its own repercussions. This was sort of a, a period of enforced incarceration. And there was also a deep mistrust of medical doctors amongst the poor. And that mitigated against any real attempt at quarantine. Uh, in Tipperary, a mob prevented a patient being removed to the fever hospital by the medical officers. They reckoned he was being kidnapped in some shape or form. In Bondoran, the seaside visitors, Bondoran was yeah. always good for the old seaside, uh, they fled the town and roads were actually blocked by carriages and foot passengers, all escaping the scenes of death. 
uh, Tullamore was abandoned, um, with crowds armed with pitchforks congregated on the road, threatening anyone going to or coming into town. Um, and a portion of the Grand Canal was drained to block canal traffic. So this is the equivalent of the blockade on the M4, yes. you know, it's the same thing. Wow. Um, we talked about the beggars, the mendicant beggars who were highly mobile. Um, they were trying to prevent them from traveling around and spreading the disease. The Board of Health set up temporary hospitals, but they were actually violently opposed, which is it was a suspicion of, of these hospitals, you know. In Ballyshannon, again, um, mobs threatened the local landlord who dared to provide a building for a hospital. Uh, and in several Irish towns, field hospitals were set up, including Sligo, where they used old grain stores. And again, in Sligo, the fever hospital, the county hospital, which was distinct from the fever hospital, wasn't actually used for fever victims, but they set up tents on the big lawn behind yes, it. Yes. And they literally, they literally in, die out into the pit. It sounds really bleak, but that was all they could do. So, you know, normal town and village life came to an end. Communities and individuals isolated themselves for fear of catching the disease by physical contact. Uh, Sligo, which had 15,000 people, Port Town, was utterly abandoned when the cholera struck in August of 1832. So people fled into the countryside. So we have this sort of urban refugees who literally fled out and slept for four to five, maybe about five weeks under the ditches in the countryside. Only about 4,000 people remained in the town. And you were either very wealthy or very poor to stay in the town. If you were very wealthy, you could afford to stay in Mm -hmm. your your house. And some big houses had their own water supplies. But most of the poor... The wells were all heavily contaminated in Sligo and most all the effluent ran into the short yes. river Garibog and that was where they took the water from as well. So there was no no connection in anybody's mind between water and the yes, disease. It just didn't, it couldn't do it, yeah. You know, it was for the local people who lived five or six, now even four or five miles, miles out of town, they were terrified of contagion and few would give shelter or food to these sort of urban refugees. And in fact, there was a, a, sanita- a cordon sanitaire, which is effectively a blockade set up around the town to stop people in traveling out, you know. Um, provisions were stopped going into town, so there was no food. Uh, trenches were dragged across the main roads to Donegal and to, to uh, Russell Point. The mail carrier from Enniskillen was turned back and a blockade was set up uh, on the main road south to Dublin. Um, prices for food uh, increased sharply uh, and the only thing that did get through was the daily mail coach from Dublin and that got through because it had armed guards that's the only reason it got through and the daily mail coach they were the people who transmitted the figures they got the figures from Sligo every day brought them back to Dublin and they were printed in the newspapers and they collected the the case figures so as we said the, the, the town was strangely silent during the epidemic and commentators would hear the dreaded rumble of the cholera cart conveying the dead to the burial ground. And commentators noted the absence of birds during the course of, con- of the contagion, which they took as important for the cholera. But in fact, that was probably due to the fact that um, in Sligo in particular, they lit a lot of tar barrels on the corners mm-hmm. of streets. They fumigated the town with sulfur and tar and that probably did more to yes, the birds than anything sure. else. Interestingly, self-imposed quarantine seems to have helped because there was no cases at Sligo Jail, which had its own freshwater supply, nor were there any cases at the Sligo Charter School. It was a boarding school. Yes. They had their own well and they were on top of a hill. So that's an interesting one, you know. Um, so Sligo had over 1,500 cases of cholera with at least 700 deaths. I suspect it was probably nearer to a thousand 
So overall, the official mortality rate was almost 50 percent. Wow. Um, wow. And the final toll would have been much more had not people left the town. Yeah, of course. Um, Scrounge break. It's Andrew, but from the future. In the year 2047, robotic superhumans have taken over the planet and there isn't much hope for the rest of the human race. And I can't quite remember why I was sent back in time. But anyways, donate a few bob to patreon.com slash livingroomlogic to help past Andrew get through his PhD. Today, I think there's so many people frustrated with all of these things going on, like people maybe being trapped in their homes or not being able to go anywhere or do the things they want. But at least today we know what it is we're protecting ourselves from. But at the time, there would absolutely be a sense of they're just telling me to do this. They don't know what's going on. Why should I listen to them? So there must have been a huge distrust in the medical establishment because you just have people coming around telling you something that you've never seen happen before is could happen, saying that, oh, people are dying of this invisible thing. And, you know, and of, who wouldn't be frustrated or confused or distrusting? So I assume that people listening to this came up with their own theories and came up with their own ideas and rebelled. Uh, am I am I on the right lines? You are on the right thing. You know, I mean, and you know, in many ways, still in the early stages of coronavirus, remember the difference with the cholera that once it went through, once it went through a town for a period of six or seven weeks, then life returned to normal. Mm-hmm. I think the distinction between us now is that we're still here a year down the line. So it doesn't mean that our emotions are any different than their were. You know, it's not that we, we, we still have scientific understanding, but it doesn't mean that our frustration is any less. We're all a bit like this, I completely you know? agree. Yeah. So, I mean, effectively, fear, fake news in the 1830s led to anxiety and irrationality, and it drowned out the voices of reason, even if those voices of reason weren't able to tell the whole truth, but they could only tell the truth as much as they knew it then, if you know what I mean. The mistrust in the medical profession stemmed really from an unfounded belief amongst the local population or the Irish population that doctors stood to profit enormously from the fees paid to them for their services. Because this was at the very beginning of a, a dis- what they called a dispensary system. So most doctors were private and could only be afforded by the very rich. But there was a sort of, um, the beginnings of the poor laws, it, it was, each parish had a certain rate that they raised in order to help the very poor. And there was quite a, quite a number of charitable institutions. For example, people were being vaccinated even in the 1820s against smallpox, something we don't really think about. Yes. Um, and that was, they tried to do as much of the population as they could. And they weren't, it was, you know, you didn't necessarily pay for it. But there was quite, it, it, the 1830s was also a period where there was quite a lot of tension between apothecaries, physicians, and surgeons who you think apothecaries are the forerunner of what we would call modern chemists, right? But in the 1830s, apothecaries often, you had a thing called an apothecary surgeon, and they often did minor surgery. Physicians only dealt with diagnosis and surgeons effectively cut. So they were considered three quite distinct uh, professions, which is still kind of replicated in the Royal College of Physicians and the Royal College of Surgeons, which are two distinct academic, or not, two distinct yes. bodies, but they stem from that historic division between diagnosis and 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 surgery. So there was quite a bit of tension between those three medical professions and quite a lot of disagreement in terms of how this disease spread. Now, that was fine between them. It's sort of an academic argument, literally. But for the public, they weren't all that happy with that. And they could see, you know, they've seen that doctors could profit enormously, where in actual fact, they didn't at all, yeah. as we've seen in, in so many mm-hmm. of them died. 
I mean, in Sligo, seven doctors died uh, from the disease, which is an enormous, you know. I mean, uh, what happened again in Sligo was public rumours speculated that doctors would be paid 10 guineas a day by the Board of Health for dealing with cases. Oh my and if they would also be paid a further yeah. five pounds for every uh, patient they kill. So you can imagine where a rumour like that was going, you know. And of course, what under what underpinned that for the superstitious poor, uh, the uneducated poor, for want of a better word, but this horrible physical appearance of cholera victims. So when cholera victims were in sort yeah. of the final throes of the disease, which happened within 48 hours, uh, you know, they were blue. They turned blue. Their skin was shriveled. You know, their eyes were huge in their head. They stent, they, there was a stench off them. They had no control over their bodily functions. Uh, and they effectively, yes, of you know, they, they shriveled up from lack of, of fluids in their body. And that gave rise really to the myth that doctors were poisoning their patients or drugging them. And then Gosh. so that they could be buried alive and then quickly vacating the beds in the fever hospital for new patients, you know. And then, of course, underpinning that again was the, the medical officers who were tasked with going around the houses to take people on cholera carts to the fever hospital in the hope of avoiding the spread of the disease, that caused huge resentment amongst the poor, particularly if they were taking somebody who was already dead or dying, that they yes. couldn't have this wake, that they couldn't have the body. So it, it's it's a cultural gulf between a very, I suppose, agricultural poor people with, with very little understanding and a medical profession which is doing its best but can't really get the message across. They couldn't get it across. They had all of these things against it and I'm I'm sure that as, as these theories came up of, you know, don't trust doctors, I'm sure there were people who cropped up and were saying, don't trust doctors, trust me. Were there people who came around and said, this is the, the real truth that's happening, gaining follow, a following during this? <laughs> Well, it's all about, uh, you know, the quack cure, yes. you know, and they call it brandy is the cure, whiskey is the cure. And most Irish people spent much of 1832 in an intoxicated state because it was reckoned that alcohol was the single greatest benefit against, you know, this diarrheal disease. Mm-hmm. And if you think of it even now, I mean, if you have a, a dodgy tummy, a brandy and port goes a long way. So maybe we haven't progressed that much, you know. But unfortunately, they were hugely dangerous quack cures mm-hmm. um, for the cholera. And they were advertised in the press. And there's some wonderful, the Welcome Collection, Welcome is, is the Welcome Institute in Britain. They have some wonderful coloured cartoons, really, as what they are, caricatures of a cholera patient with about 14 different potions and and, um, you know, he's still blue, he's still turning blue, he's still on the way out, but he's drinking his brandy <laughs> and his chamomile, you know. So there was loads of different things. So there's lemon juice, lavender oil, elderberry, liquid silver, hot water, hot water with, with bacteria in it, oh were among the remedies sort of being suggested in, in the particular newspapers of the day. You know, the, the lack of understanding of the nature of the disease meant that they simply had no concept of, of how this worked. Of course. So uh, many of the treatments for cholera are based on traditional uh, cures. So there was a lot of poultices, a lot of mustard, uh, a lot of emetics, you know. And mm-hmm. um, one of the big things in the, in the early 19th century was if somebody was sick, they would deliver emetics to make you sick or enemas to make it go the other way to purge you, right? And while that might be fine for certain cases of food poisoning, if for somebody with cholera, it just it leads to a catastrophic depletion of a patient's bodily fluid. When your bodily fluids get so low, even today, that results, I think, in low blood pressure, rapid heartbeat, uh, and effectively a collapse of your cardiovascular system. Yes. So you effectively, your heart can't 
there's not enough fluid in the body. So one of the things that was used certainly in Ireland and in Britain was bleeding, which was a, a traditional remedy for restoring a circulatory balance. And they administered mercury, opium and laudanum, which were all common drugs during the period, all poison, of course, oh you know. Gosh. And, you know, the other range of substance prescribed was ammonia, arsenic, camphor, <laughs> castor oil and turpentine. Oh, wow. And so all of these treatments only made the patient worse and hastened death. And there was this belief, as I said, that alcohol provided some immunity to the disease and it was consumed widely. And yeah. in Britain, I think they actually had a whole factory. Uh, I think it was called B&T brandy. And it was really important to have the British brandy and not the French brandy, oh because that would God. mean, you know, more taxes for the British. So wow. they, uh, th- that was a big thing in Britain was the brandy. Here, brandy and whiskey were used to encourage people to vomit and, and they were both considered preventative and um, and curative. Uh, whiskey mixed with ginger was given to children as a daily preventative measure for everything, yeah. never mind cholera. Ginger in itself certainly has good properties. It's, it's, it's always uh, interesting. It's always nice to take ginger. And I can confirm that my grandmother definitely gave me whiskey as a child <laughs> in the hope that it would help, you know. So um, and this is a woman who would have been born in the 19th century. Yeah. So... Um, some of these things don't necessarily die out. And in Sligo, of course, where the fever hospital was overrun, the, they're called nursing aides. We won't call them nurses because they, there was no professional qualification as a nurse. They were simply women who went in and, and, and nursed people. Yes. Uh, because the, the people, the women who would have been employed, the matron and the women who would have been employed were all dead in the first two weeks of the um, of the fever. So the only people they could employ at Sligo Fever Hospital were those who were drunk enough are mad enough to actually do it and so effectively the women who more or less looked after the people in the fever hospital were permanently drunk for six weeks because they seen that was the way uh, of preventing the cholera oh my gosh and you know who to say we wouldn't do the same so if we true. were there at the time so yeah, the... so it, it was uh it was an interesting period as well in terms of of how to tackle these diseases from a medical point of view the one thing that they realized afterwards um, is that it was somehow connected with human effluent. Mm-hmm. And in Sligo Town, in the decade after the cholera, they laid over 27 miles of brick sewers into the lowest part of the river below where anybody took water from. So they weren't sure how it transmitted, but they knew they had to somehow get rid of the effluent. Yes, you know? of so I think that's an interesting um, cause and effect in itself. Yeah, it's very interesting. And it seems like a lot of what they were doing was trying to spot the pattern, trying to see what was the most likely thing that was happening. Was it, uh, obviously, it had to have something to do with water because the prison that you mentioned, it had its own source and they were all healthy, but people sharing one well wasn't they they were figuring out that being distant from each other helped and quarantining the sick helped as well it's just uh it's quite interesting to also hear that uh they decided to get everyone drunk and and all of and poison them because they like it it shows that they got some of it right but they they didn't get everything right and maybe that's just a sign of the times and uh before i let you go i'm just interested about the the, these kind of conspiracies and quack cures were these now were, were these from like snake oil salesmen that were coming around or were there doctors advocating for this as well well, I, I suppose they, they were bits of everything. Yeah. As I said, you know, um, medicines in, in Ireland would have been dispensed by the apothecaries or the chemists. And they compounded medicines and theoretically they were overseen by the College of Physicians, right? Yes. 
And um, so the physicians all treated internal disease mm-hmm. uh, and the surgeons external disease. And as I said, there was quite a bit of tension between these three professions at the time, which would play itself out over the next decade or so as, as they changed. Uh, apothecaries gradually became less and less important. Yes. But they compounded, their apothecaries were allowed to compound their own medication up until the end of the 19th century. So some of these were very responsible men. As advanced as you could be academically at that time, you had to be examined by the College of Physicians. But of course, anybody could pass themselves off as an apothecary and anybody could sell, you know, a bottle of blue pills mm-hmm. uh, from the back of a, a van. And of course, the whole, all you had to be was a traveling salesman with a bottle of pills and or a bottle of tonic, low down them and uh, see how that went. So yeah, they, they came in all shapes and sizes. That's absolutely fascinating, even comparing that to the to today of not everyone on Twitter knows they're not an expert, just even if they sound like they're an expert, not every YouTube video that pops up, it's the same thing. That's it's so fascinating thinking about all of the um, the way that this spread in the 19th century and the way that it was communicated and the way that people reacted and just looking at today and looking at how everyone was feeling and looking at how people reacted. And what goes to show is that no matter it, it's a big thing of no matter how technologically evolved are both us now and us from the 19th century were both human beings with the same flaws and the same vulnerability to infections. And sadly, the the things that worked then are the same things that work now. Well, that's it. You know, I mean, none of us like to, I certainly don't like, you know, being confined or being confined to the 5k or the 10, whatever it is now. And so you have the, we all have this rational part of our brain and then this utterly irrational part of our brain where we, throw things at the telly at <laughs> night when they tell us no you can't do this and yes no you can't go to the hairdresser but we do know that quarantine works yeah. don't like it but it works the less the less case numbers you have the less mixing you have the less case numbers you have particularly in something that's highly infectious because coronavirus is a respiratory disease so it's even you know you wouldn't have to have that same precaution with say bacterial disease which needs to travel in a different way but anything that's respiratory obviously it travels fast so quarantine works it's been proven and social separation works being proven we don't like it (laughs) and we don't like it uh, but it does work and simple things wash your hands if you Happen to be in the car every day at two o'clock when Joe Duffy starts shouting one, two, three, four, five, wash your hands. And you're kind of going, oh, God. And of course, this is one of the most basic things we can do. And something that we in since the 1960s have really, but even later, even since the 1970s, we've kind of forgotten a little bit about it. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm of a vintage that you would sort of be back to the kitchen thing to wash your hands before you went to your dinner. And that's the first line of defense. Very, very simple. I think I, I said to you before, I spent a good bit of time in, in Kenya working at different refugee camps, very informal refugee camps in the 90s. It was a total and utter shock to the system. Yeah. Uh, but I learned some really basic facts. You know, uh, Kenyans, no matter how poor they were, no matter you'd go into a mud hut, you, you know, to have something to eat. First thing they would give you, uh, they'd have a plastic jug of hot water, boiled hot water, a carbolic soap and a clean towel and a basin. So they didn't have any toilets, they didn't have any running water, but they knew you couldn't touch your food without washing your hands. And I was in Kenya, not last September, the September before, with some students, and I said to them, you know, girls, even some students, I said, girls, you're going to go off your head, because this is before coronavirus. Yes, yes. Everywhere you go, they'll be looking for you to wash your hands. 
So whatever you do, always wash your hands. And they were laughing at this and said, oh, why do you need to wash your hands? Well, I said to the guys, you know, you're going to have to wash your hands when they, you know, and there's sinks on the outside of the buildings, which the students thought was hilarious. But of course, everywhere. And for me, it was second nature. Carbolic soap, you wash your hands. Because the Kenyans knew there was no second line of defense. You know, in many cases, they were 20, 30 miles from a hospital. They may not have had the money to go to hospital. There were no drugs available. There were no antibiotics. So they knew you break the chain. And we have lost that in the last uh, 30 or 40 years. And now we're, we're back to it. But it, it really works. It's very, very simple. Yeah, it's, uh, it's interesting because we take it for granted, this uh, first line of defense that we, we in first world nations don't need to follow these first line of defenses of being hygienic because if we get sick, we'll get antibiotics. If we get a virus, we'll get antivirals. If we get very ill, we'll go to a hospital that's within 20 minutes of us for most people. And it's free because we live in a very, we're very lucky to live in the society that we live in where we, we yeah. all contribute equally into the common pot. And despite <laughs> all the whinging that people do, we benefit, everybody benefits from it. You know, it, it's all relative. Yeah. And I mean, I think, you know, you go back to, again, I'm a bit of an older vintage than you and, you know, my father would have worked in, in the, on the railways for years and he would have come in from work every evening. The first thing he did before he went to the was he would scrub up to his elbows at the sink, wash off. And then yeah. and that was ingrained in him as well. And I think in many ways, there's no harm that we got a bit of a wake up call because it's, yeah. it's very simple. It costs nothing, but it, it has. Yeah. The benefits are huge, you know, and that's why I couldn't understand that people didn't want to wear masks yeah. and Okay, you don't want to wear them all the time, but in in certain circumstances, because it costs nothing and it's so simple, but the end result for such a little investment, the end result is huge. And to me, that's total logic, you know, and hopefully we get to the stage where we don't have to do that. But for the meantime, I think it's it's, it's about solidarity. What what a fabulous, fabulous thing to listen to. Thank you so much, Fiona. That was that was just so interesting and what an interesting amount of knowledge to consider and think about mirroring to common events because there is a lot of truth in history repeats itself and humans of 200 years mm-hmm. ago react the same way absolutely are still humans today yeah we absolutely. yeah time may change but we do not you know so, <laughs> so thank you so much welcome andrew this is the end of the podcast We hope you enjoyed your time If you're feeling generous And you're not completely skinned Why don't you give us some of your money Join our Patreon Join our Patreon Join our Patreon Join our Patreon. Mom. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 